open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 19. It's our uh, great privilege to open up God's Word tonight and to read this scripture, which is really the one that we've been waiting for ever since we began this study all the way back in August of 2008. And so we've been studying in the book of Revelation for 28 months now. Uh, from where we first started. And we read in Revelation chapter 1, I'll just read this to you, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. There we're told that there is a blessing in studying this book, and it's a book that's often ignored. There, there are many people who think that the book of Revelation is just too hard to try and figure out, and the reward of finding out what all of this means is really not worth all the effort. Now, we would have to dispute that. The Word of God says that there is a blessing for studying this, and we're never going to understand what that blessing is unless we do exactly what we have been doing, and that's to study the Word of God to find out what this book means. Now, the first verse of Revelation begins by telling us it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the revelation of the visible return of Jesus Christ. And so there's a day when the heavens are going to be peeled back, heaven will open, and then Christ in his splendor and his majesty will come out riding on a white horse, and he'll be accompanied with an army of redeemed men and of holy angels, and he comes to earth to establish his righteous kingdom. And there are 18 and a half chapters that we've studied up to this point to bring us to what really is the climax. This is the apex of the book of Revelation. This is Christ revealed. This is what we're reading about tonight. Now, I think this passage is well worth the honor of us standing and reading. So if you'd stand with me, please. We're looking at Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11, and we'll read down to verse number 16. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, for your word tonight. And help us, Lord, as we look into this and for these next few weeks as we talk about the glorious return of your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we're hopeful for that. We look for it. And those of us who are saved tonight, we know we're going to enter into that kingdom with, the, with your Son when he comes. Bless as we study tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. These six verses are the climax in Revelation. And I reminded you often as we've looked into this uh, that the most important event in world history is yet to come. 
All the way back when Lucifer first rebelled against God in heaven and then he tempted man to sin, the world has been in this deep downward spiral. All sinned and uh, Adam sinned uh, right after he was tempted and within one generation there, there was murder. And you go a little bit further in human history and you come to a time in the sixth chapter of Genesis where the wickedness of men was so pervasive that God destroyed all but eight people in a worldwide flood. And the human race started all over again with those eight people. They were believers in God. They were righteous. And because of that, because they believed that God would save them, they were saved in the ark. But those eight people had their sinful nature still. And it wasn't long before another wicked generation had grown up and defied God. And then in the 11th chapter of Genesis, we find that men got together and formed the first human government. And the product of man's work is always evil. And that government that they started was evil. And their efforts also produced the first idolatrous religion on the earth. And that was a satanic religion. And um, it hasn't gone away. In fact, it underlies today every false religious system that's in the world. And it grows and it grows and grows until we find it in its final form in Revelation under the title of Mystery Babylon. And at that time, the very worst that men can do is piled up higher and higher until those sins reach heaven and then God is not going to stand it any longer. And that's very disconcerting news because the negative outcome of this is that the world is going to get worse and worse. We can't expect that the world is going to get better. We can't really expect that people are going to change their ways and that the world is going to see a great revival and things will be changed on the earth and we'll see peace on earth. That's simply not going to happen. People are asking all the time, is the world actually going to get better? And men have dreamed about it. People have hoped for it. They write books about utopia. And there are many people who do believe that it's possible. But it's not possible according to the Word of God. The world is going to get a whole lot worse. Now, we've seen terrible times, but we haven't seen the worst. The downward spiral that mankind is in continues, and it's all bad news all the time until we finally reach this time when God is going to pinch it off and he's going to rest that fall by appearing from heaven to defeat evil forever. And that is the most significant event in world history. It's the revelation of the Lord from heaven. And that's when he comes to defeat sin and death and Satan forever. And so in the present state that the world is in, it can't get better. And that's because sin reigns. And it can't get better because the outcome of sin is always death. But we do have this positive, and that is the king will return with his armies to defeat sin. And then the world's going to enter into a new state, different from what it is now, and it will be immeasurably better. It'll be a green garden where where the world prospers and men will live in peace with other men. The earth will be in harmony again, just like it was in the time of Eden. And so sin is going to be checked, and Christ will rule over it. Now, human history from the very beginning has always been moving towards that event. And the progression that we find of Bible revelation is the unfolding of that drama for the king to actually come. And so we have the first advent of Christ, and that was to provide for us a way of redemption. Uh, We have the cross where Jesus died, and then the tomb where he was for three days, where they put his body. And then after three days, he arose from the tomb and conquered death. And then there was the ascension of Christ into heaven. And when he went up, he left that promise that he was going to return to the earth in power and glory. 
And all of that brings us to this climax in Revelation 19. It's the world's greatest event. It's the return of the king. And so you move us beyond the cross, and uh, you move us beyond the resurrection, move us beyond the ascension of Christ, and then bring us to this glorious return of the king, and I promise you that you'll never see anything that'll top it. As Paul said, now is our salvation nearer than, we, than when we believe. And the apostle meant that the plan and purpose of God is put into effect, and in redemptive history, it's going to be fulfilled. And every day that we live, we're getting closer to that time. In the past 150 years or so, in these last 150 years, I think there has been a greater understanding of Bible prophecy concerning the coming of Christ. And you'll find that there are some people that are disconcerted that premillinary doctrine had not been fully developed in the church until about 150 years ago. And it could be that that God has reserved this for us because now we can better understand how that John, what John saw could actually come to pass. Rapid communication around the world is now possible. A fast-moving tribulation period in which the temple can be rebuilt, that can happen now. That wasn't possible before. Rapid troop movements across the world are possible. A global economy is already in place. And not before has the world ever seen uh, a world that's so, that's so economically interde- interdependent. And so it appears to us the, that the stage is being set. And whether that comes in my lifetime or whether it comes in the lifetimes of some of the younger ones are, that are here, or whether it doesn't come before either of us die, I don't think it's going to be very long before Christ comes. I really don't think that we're going to be waiting another thousand or more years for Christ to come because it appears that the, that the stage is being set for his arrival. Now, as we think about the second coming of Christ, it's not an obscure notion in the Bible. And when I said that world history is moving towards this, God made that known at various junctures in history. And so for the rest of the time of tonight, I want us to look into the Scriptures, and we're going to see where this, this doctrine of the second coming is taught. So tonight we, we're going to dwell on this, and that is the anticipation of Christ's return. Oftentimes when you look in Scripture and you find prophecies about Christ's coming, uh, there will be the first advent of Christ and also the second advent of Christ combined in one Scripture. And the first is pointed out, that might be mentioned, and then the second is also in that very same Scripture. And the first time that we see this happening in Scripture is one that you're very familiar with. It really should be fresh on your minds because we've just come out of the Christmas season, and I focused on this particular prophecy in, the, in some of the Christmas messages. And that's the Proto-Evangelium that we find in Genesis 3.15. And if you interpret correctly... The Proto-Evangelium. Does everybody remember what that means? Proto-Evangelium means the first preaching of the gospel. First time the gospel is preached. That's what Proto-Evangelium means. And so when you interpret it correctly, you see not only the first advent of Christ that he'll come, but you also see the second advent. And this is what we call the bruised head and the bruised heel. It comes from Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now, we don't need to spend a lot of time on the background of the Scripture. This is when sin entered into the creation, and God pronounced a curse upon the earth. Sin and that curse is actually the impetus for both the first coming and the second coming of Christ. 
Now, the prophecy is found in the last part of the verse where it says, It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And the it there is actually he. That's the seed of the woman. And that's one of the designations that we have in Scripture for Christ. So the seed of the woman is going to be bruised by the serpent. And it's, it's, he, it's its heel that's going to be bruised. And that's not a fatal blow. It, it refers to the hindrances of Satan against the work of God. And it also refers to the death of Jesus on the cross. But the cross was not a fatal blow to Christ. He triumphed over the tomb. And so the first part of that prophecy concerns the first advent of Christ. And I'd have to say also that I do agree with Calvin that the seed of the woman not only refers to those, it refers to Christ himself, but it refers also to all that are in Christ. And that's because Satan is our enemy. We're greatly afflicted by Satan, and we will be until Christ returns. But the second part of the prophecy has its final fulfillment in the second advent of Christ. Christ will bruise the head of the serpent, and that means he'll give the serpent a fatal blow. The head is the life, and the head is the poison. And so Christ is coming to crush the head of the serpent. And the revelation of Christ in chapter 19 of Revelation is for that purpose. This is why he's coming back. He is going to crush the head of the serpent. Now we notice that in the 19th chapter, Christ comes with an army from heaven clothed in white. And I think that the primary reference there is to those that are redeemed, as we see in the 8th verse of the chapter. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. So the seed of the woman is Christ, and he's going to come, and he'll come with his people, and with his people he will deliver that crushing blow to Satan. Now, in the third chapter of Genesis, then we find the, the earliest prophecy of, of God's intent, and we find it revealed to us in less than 1,500 words from the beginning of the Bible. The Scriptures begin with this at a very early stage. I mean, all the way back at the Garden of Eden, we're already talking that Christ is going to come back into the world, and he's going to restore creation for the glory of God. Well, the next prophecy is not found in the Old Testament. But it is found next in order, even though we find the prophecy in the New. And, and I'm not really trying to stick to a chronological order here as I give you these, but I do want to point this one out because it's, it's just the strangeness of it, the peculiar nature of it makes it very important to us. And this is the tens of thousands, the tens of thousands. And this prophecy is found in the New Testament, in Jude verses 14 and 15. And it's the prophecy of Enoch, who was only seven generations from Adam. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And this is really, truly one of the most remarkable prophecies in Scripture. And I noted it for this particular reason. It's a prophecy of Enoch from the Old Testament, and yet we go back to the Old Testament and we can't find any prophecy at all of Enoch. It's not, it's not there. And from that has risen this notion that there are these spurious, non-canonical books of Enoch Something that Enoch wrote that's been discovered and wasn't actually put into the Bible record, but it's still the truth of God's Word. Well, what we have in, in this Bible right here, this is God's Word. It's full and complete. 
There aren't any other revelations. So we don't look for any other books that might be outside of this. And so if somebody says, well, I found the lost prophecy of Enoch. I found the book that he wrote. And now we know exactly what he said. You're not going to find it. And don't believe it. Because if it's not in these scriptures, then it can't be believed. But we do know this, that according to the New Testament, God raised up this godly prophet named Enoch, and he gave this prophecy. And I'm sure that you remember that Enoch is special in Bible history because he's one of only two men that never died. There are only two people in all the history of the world that got out of this world alive, and that was Enoch and Elijah. And that makes the prophecy very, very significant. God took him to heaven. And it might be that because of his righteous life, because he was just an abnormal person in a world of wickedness, that he was so special and so godly that God gave him this prophecy. So it's not recorded in the Old Testament. And so Jude must have received this revelation directly from the Holy Spirit Or it might even be possible that this is something that Christ told the apostles privately when he talked about the second coming. But thousands of years before the first advent of Christ, Enoch prophesied that Christ would come with thousands of his saints. And so however Jude may have received that, Enoch preached about it. And it happened before God judged the world in the flood. Even before that happened, Enoch prophesied that Jesus was coming back to end sin in this world forever. Now, the third prophecy I want to show you also refers to a special time. And usually, when there, there are significant events that are happening when this promise is renewed. And this one comes before Israel was established as a nation. And uh, I point to this and want to bring it out because we know that Christ would come from Israel and that the throne of Israel would be established forever and Christ is going to sit upon that throne. And this prophecy is the scepter of Shiloh. In Genesis 49 verse 10 we find it, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. This is the blessing that Jacob gave to Judah, his son Judah, just before he died. Now, as we know, uh, the 12 sons of Jacob are the 12 tribes of Israel. And there was one particular son of Jacob that would be the ancestor of all the kings of Israel. And that was Judah. And so there was a blessing that was placed upon Judah in this 10th verse in Genesis 49. And so it says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. And the scepter there is emblematic of ruling authority. And Christ has to come through that lineage in order to be validated as a king of Israel. And Jesus met that criteria. He was the last one, the last one of that line of kings that came from Judah. So you trace that ancestry back through King David all the way back to Judah and the original promise that was made when Jacob blessed his son. Now, it says Shiloh, until Shiloh come. And Shiloh is an interesting word. It's really one that's kind of obscure, and uh, not everybody is exactly agreed on what it means, but just about everybody believes that Shiloh has something to do with peace. Either it refers to Christ as the Prince of Peace, or perhaps it refers to the peaceable nature of Christ, but somehow or another it has something to do with peace. Well, when we think about Christ, where would we find the greatest fulfillment of peace. Well, when Christ came, he was a peaceable man, that's true. But the greatest accomplishment of peace is always associated with Christ as the Prince of Peace in the second advent. 
Peace on earth when, the, when Christ is ruling the entire, uh, the entire world in peace. And that's something that's peculiar to the millennial reign. And that helps us to tie that actually to the second part of Christ's coming. Not the rapture, but when he comes as we've just read in Revelation 19. And so the prophecy of Genesis 49.10 is most uh, closely connected to the second coming because when Christ came the first time, he wasn't recognized as a king. I mean, he was only referred to that way in a mocking way, uh, such as when Pilate put the sign upon the cross that said, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And so they didn't really accept him as the king. Now, the disciples finally came to the realization that Jesus was the king, but for the most part, Israel rejected that, and that's why they crucified him. And Israel still remains in unbelief. Now, we notice the last part of the verse. It says, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. And we can follow that on down to verse number 11, where it says, binding his foal unto the vine and his ass's colt unto the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. And that's almost assuredly a millennial prophecy. It speaks of the prosperity of the kingdom. And there it says that all people are going to be gathered to Christ. And there are many, many prophecies in the Old Testament that concern this, where it says that all nations are going to come to Christ. They'll bow before him. And that didn't happen in the first advent. So we know that the prophecy is looking forward to the second coming of Christ. In Psalm 72, uh, beginning in verse 8, it says, He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river unto the ends of the earth. They that dwell in the wilderness shall bow before him, and his enemies shall lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of the isles shall bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba shall offer gifts. Yea, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. And so when that prophecy was given, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, that was a declaration of the kingship of Christ. Now, let's move on because I'm going to fit in a few more here this evening. And um, we're going to spend, we could spend just lots and lots of time in the Old Testament. And uh, next week, I'll tell you a little bit more about this, about how many times that the second coming is spoken of in Scripture. But this is a very, very prominent doctrine. So we're going to move on to another one. And the fourth one I want to talk to you about is fury and fighting. And in this next Scripture, it's, we find that it's, pointed directly at Revelation chapter 19, and that's Isaiah chapter 63. So if you turn there with me, I'd like you to read this with me, and uh, you should mark this scripture down. If your Bible doesn't have a center reference column, or if it doesn't mark this in some way, you should write this down, because this is pointed directly at Revelation chapter 19. So we'll look at this together. Isaiah 63, beginning in verse number 1. Isaiah 63, 1. Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Bozrah, this that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength? I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat? I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me. For I will tread them in mine anger, and trample them in my fury." And their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. For the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. And I looked, and there was none to help, and I wondered that there was none to uphold. 
Therefore, mine own arm brought salvation unto me, and my fury it upheld me. And I will tread down the people in mine anger and make them drunk in my fury. And I will bring down their strength to the earth. Now here, long before the first advent, Isaiah gives one of many, many prophecies concerning the second coming. John saw heaven open, and when Jesus appeared, this scripture in Isaiah must have just leapt out of him. I mean, it was just like he could see Isaiah unfolding right before his eyes. Here are those blood-stained garments that Isaiah talks about. There's the wine press, and that's emblematic of the slaughter at Armageddon. And so the fury and the fighting as the king comes in his glory, that's all in this passage. Now, we'll get to Armageddon a little bit later, but Isaiah 63 talks about that carnage at Armageddon. And the nations are gathered together by divine fiat. God leads them there, and he leads them into this place where he's going to stomp them like grapes in a wine vat. And he crushes them and presses them until their blood runs out, and it stains his garments. Now, that's not a very pretty sight. And it's not really what most people think about when they think of Christ. And usually when you're talking about the second coming, they surely aren't thinking about this. This isn't the docile lamb that that was uh, obediently led to the slaughter and silently went to the cross. This is the king who comes out roaring like a lion and he devours his prey. It's the destruction of sin. And it's not like Mr. Clean who cleans all day long and still comes out shining white. Now, we see Jesus here stained in blood. He treads the wine press, and so he steps on evil, sinful men and splatters their blood. And there's no way that you could make that pretty. Sin is a horrible thing, and it has to be treated in like kind. And so in the first advent of Christ, the blood was his. The blood stained the cross, and the blood stained the ground where Jesus was crucified. But here we're not talking about Christ's blood. This is not his blood on his garments. He's not wounded. What he's doing is delivering the crushing blow to the serpent and his followers. And so it's their blood that stains his garments. Now, I don't think that you're going to turn on your TV and hear Osteen preach about this. And the churches around here are not going to tell you about this. They're not going to preach on this subject. I mean, if you're somebody, a preacher who doesn't want to mention sin and hell, and you don't want to talk about the blood of the cross, then you're not likely to preach that Christ is going to be stained with the, find the blood stains of his enemies on his garments, his victims. You're not likely to hear about that. But this is what it takes to usher in the millennial kingdom. And there, when you get into that kingdom, you find, find the world at peace. And there you find all the tranquility that you want. But the way to get there is brutally hard. It doesn't come easy. And if you want peace, you're going to have to wait till things get a whole lot worse. Now, fifthly in Scripture, we see gathering and gluttony. And so we go a little bit further in the Old Testament. If you'll go to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 39, and we find Ezekiel's prophecy. Ezekiel prophesied during the time of the exile and for a time after the exile. And so he is what is known as an exilic or post-exilic prophet. That means he prophesied in the exile and after the exile. So this puts him in the time period around 600 B.C. in in that time frame. Uh, We know Jerusalem was destroyed in 586 B.C. So uh, Ezekiel's prophesying around that time. So it's at a time when the walls of Jerusalem were destroyed, the temple had been torn down, and you really don't have to do much guesswork to think about what kind of frame of mind 
that the people of Israel were in because of this. And if you wanted to read the 137th Psalm, you would find the types of morbid songs that the people sang. Uh, They wanted to sing the, the beautiful songs of Zion, but instead they were singing songs of remorse. See how you like this stanza. Psalm 139. What what if our songs were like this that we sang in Berean? O daughter of Babylon, who art to be destroyed, happy shall he be that rewardeth thee as thou hast served us. Happy shall he be that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stones. I don't think anybody in here would be too happy if we sang songs like that. But this is what the people of Israel were singing. And so they weren't in any mood to to, to hear anything other than something about what's going to happen to their enemies. I mean, it was a morbid song. And Ezekiel prophesied to people who wanted to hear some good news about what God was going to do to those that oppressed them. Now, interestingly, Ezekiel has a lot of prophecy about the second coming. And uh, while you're looking for Ezekiel 39, I don't know if you found it or not, but let me just, you look at that, and just for a minute, let me read our text in Revelation 19, just, just after what we read a moment ago. It says, And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of captains, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of them that sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. Now we compare that to Ezekiel 39, beginning in verse 17. And thou, son of man, thus saith the Lord God, speak unto every feathered fowl and every beast of the field, assemble yourselves and come, gather yourselves on every side to my sacrifice that I do sacrifice for you, even a great sacrifice upon the mountains of Israel, that ye may eat flesh and drink blood. Ye shall eat the flesh of the mighty and drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams, of lambs, and of goats and bullocks, all of them fatlings of Bashan. And ye shall eat fat till ye be full, and drink blood till ye be drunken of my sacrifice, which I have sacrificed for you. Thus ye shall be filled at my table with horses and chariots and mighty men, and with all men of war, saith the Lord God. And I will set my glory among the heathen, and all the heathen shall see my judgment that I have executed, and my hand that I have laid upon them. So the house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day and forward. And so there you see another Armageddon prophecy. You go beyond the first advent to the second coming of Christ, and there we see God's intentions. Things are going to get a whole lot worse before they get better. And that's because God is going to bring vengeance on sin. So here we see these carrion-eating birds that are called to the supper, and they're called to feast on this carnage that's been trampled out in God's vengeance. And that's quite a different scene from what we were talking about earlier. We spent all that time talking about the great wedding feast of the Lamb. This is a totally different type of feast. Now, we'll go quickly to another one. This is in Joel chapter 3. So you've got Ezekiel and Daniel, Hosea, then after that comes Joel. And you notice here, I'm going to skip Daniel. Uh, we, we could spend just hours and hours and hours in Daniel alone because Daniel is actually the key to end times prophecy. But we're going to overlook that. We've talked about those many times before. But in, Zo- in Joel chapter 3, we have the sickle and shaking. Now, often in the Old Testament, the whole period of tribulation and the final destruction of the wicked are all rolled into one scene. 
And that's what we have here. So if you'll look at the ninth verse of Joel chapter 3, it says, Proclaim ye this among the Gentiles, prepare war, wake up the mighty men, let all the men of war draw near, let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. Assemble yourselves and come, all ye heathen, and gather yourselves together round about. Thither cause thy mighty ones to come down, O Lord. Let the heathen be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the heathen round about. Put ye in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, get you down, for the press is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon shall be darkened, and the stars shall withdraw their shining. The Lord also shall roar out of Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth shall shake. But the Lord will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel. So shall ye know that I am the Lord your God dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then shall Jerusalem be holy and there shall no strangers pass through her any more. Now this is speaking of the gathering of the Gentile nations that are the ones that joined with the Antichrist in the persecution of Israel. And so they're brought into the valley of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat means Yahweh judges. Now we don't actually have in Scripture a place designated as the valley of Jehoshaphat. We're not told where that is, except that the Lord tells us where Yahweh judges. And where is that place? Well, we know it as the valley of Megiddo. That's why we have the, the term Armageddon, the mountain of the Lord, and it talks about that valley that's there, and it's the area that's near to Jerusalem, and it runs down about 200 miles in a 200-mile trough, which is the same place where the river is going to run with, with blood of God's enemies. So you have the valley of Jezreel, you have the valley of Megiddo, you have the valley of Esdraelon, and that all comes to the, or is all the place that it's called the wine press where God is going to trample out uh, his enemies. So he says, put ye in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. And that means that sin has been filled up to the max. The harvest is ripe, and the earth is ripe for its destruction. And then you notice in verse number 10 that it said, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. And so things are going to get a lot worse before they get better. Here we find farm implements that are beaten into weapons. It's going to get worse first, but then it's going to get better. Because you should have recognized, I hope, that Isaiah actually verses this prophecy. After the carnage of the battle of Armageddon, the righteous kingdom comes upon the earth, and then things change. And this is where Isaiah says, And he shall judge among the nations, and shall rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. So there's the opposite. Before, they're beating the, the farm implements into weapons, and now they take them and transfer them back into farm implements. And he says, Nation will not lift up sword against nation, neither, neither shall they learn war anymore. And so things are going to get worse, but then they're going to get, oh, so much better. Now let me give you one more prophecy, and this one we find in the New Testament, and this is the sign and the sound. This is a prophecy spoken by Jesus on the Mount of Olives. Now, Gary and I had a wonderful privilege of going up on the Mount of Olives that overlooks the eastern side of Jerusalem. And there you see uh, near the entire city, the old city. You see the eastern gate that's now sealed up. 
see the Dome of the Rock and the Temple Mount and all of that that's there uh, in Jerusalem. And it was from that vantage point that Jesus spoke to his disciples about the last days and he told them that he would return. Now, Jerusalem, the city, of course, is in all these prophecies. And I can imagine that as Jesus was speaking to his disciples, they were overlooking the city, standing on the mount. And I'm sure that he motioned over there and, and, and showed them what he was saying here and what was going to take place. Now, he had a lot to say about it. But in Matthew 24, I want to pick out just one part. Matthew 24 and verse 27 For as the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. And here we see Jesus again wrapping all of that end time prophecy. All these things are going to happen into one scene here. This is not all happening at the same time, but the way he relates this looks like it's coming very, very closely together. Verse 30, And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, that is, after the tribulation is over. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. That's Revelation 19. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And so Jesus just kind of rolls in that time period into one place in just a few verses. And there's the tribulation. Then we find in this scripture the birds that eat the carcasses of the dead men. There's the sign of Christ's coming. And there's the sound of his coming. I don't know what the sign is going to be. Maybe the sign is just what John saw. The heavens being peeled back and Christ appearing. Maybe that's the sign. But I do know what the sound is going to be. It's going to be the sound of a trumpet. And this sound is going to be loud. It'll have the attention of every person upon the earth. No one is going to miss the coming of Christ the King. And it's all captured in this scene with Christ coming out, appearing on this white horse, coming to conquer the world. And then his kingdom will begin. Now, there's nothing in Scripture that... There's nothing we can explain, I should say, that can do this justice Things are going to get very, very bad for the world. Things are going to get a whole lot worse. But then when Christ is through with all of that, then things will be oh so good. And this is what the Bible talks about with the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is what we're waiting for. This is what the prophecies in the Old Testament keep pointing to and telling us about and telling us about. The world is moving right now in this direction. And you can't miss the anticipation of Scripture that Christ is coming back. And it makes it oh so more pointed for us to to read Scripture about this, about how we should live, what we should do, what we should think about Christ coming again. And it really ought to change us because we want to be a part of that millennial kingdom. We want to rule and to reign with him. And so this is great anticipation. The King, King of kings and Lord of lords is going to come. And all of you that are Christians, you ought to be oh so glad about that. Things are going to be oh so bad, but then oh so good, because the good king, the righteous king, is coming to this earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time that we've been able to spend tonight. And and just to look into the Old Testament and other prophecies that we see here in the New about your coming. Lord, help us to be aware of this, that 
that you are coming to rule this world in righteousness, and we want to be a part of that. And for those of our people here that that are part of the church and they're part of, they are believers in you, they're going to have a part in this kingdom. And we thank you. We thank you for that, Lord. And we look for it with great anticipation. Bless as we sing tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.